This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass Politics is sponsored by Gold Medal Wine Club. Since 1992, they've been America's leading independent wine club. And right now, if you go to the show site at kickasspolitics.com and click on our special link on the sponsor page, Gold Medal Wine Club will give you up to 45% off wines rated 90 points and up. Plus, they'll even throw in free shipping. For all your wine desires, Gold Medal Wine Club. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war, and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Well, I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the Founding Fathers. You're listening to an address given by Ronald Reagan in 1964. It was titled A Time for Choosing, but it's been known ever since simply as The Speech. It launched the political career of Ronald Reagan and it changed the conservative movement in America forever. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down. Man's old, old... It's now the 50th anniversary of Ronald Reagan's A Time for Choosing. He gave this 30-minute speech on NBC just one week before the 1964 presidential election. It was actually staged as a fundraising appeal for the GOP presidential nominee, Barry Goldwater. But more than at any time in all of his years in Hollywood, that night, Ronald Reagan stole the show. After the speech, Washington Post columnist David Broder called it the most successful political debut since William Jennings Bryan. Reagan later wrote, I didn't know it then, but that speech was one of the most important milestones of my life. Well, it's now the 50th anniversary of Reagan's A Time for Choosing, and I'm going to be celebrating the occasion with author and Reagan scholar Dr. Stephen F. Hayward. He's the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Visiting Professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. He's also written several books on Ronald Reagan, including a two-volume biography of Reagan titled The Age of Reagan, 1964 to 1980, The Fall of the Old Liberal Order, and the follow-up, the Age of Reagan, the Conservative Counter-Revolution, 1980-1989, as well as a fascinating book called Greatness, Reagan, Churchill, and the Making of Extraordinary Leaders. So don't go anywhere, because we're going to be Reaganing today on Kick-Ass Politics. Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Dr. Stephen F. Hayward, thanks for joining me. Sure. 
So on my way over here, I was actually listening to Ronald Reagan's A Time for Choosing speech again, and I just got chills. It just, it literally blew me away. And all I could think was just, wow, wow. What was the country's reaction like? They must not have even known what hit them. Yeah, wow was what the country said when they heard it. I mean, this came uh, like a bolt out of the blue. And uh, on the one hand, most people, I think, knew who Ronald Reagan was. Uh, if you'd seen any movies or TV shows, you were at least a little familiar with him the way you'd be familiar with some actor today who you see in lots of movies and TV shows. But they'd never seen Ronald Reagan, the political thinker and orator before. Uh, this was brand new for Ronald Reagan. Gosh, here was this familiar face who's now talking about the most serious political issues of our time. And second, it was the, um, uh, the skill of the speech. I mean, the speech is a model of persuasive political rhetoric. And uh, you, know, you have to say a lot of things about it. But one of them is, is that it was really better than the case Barry Goldwater had made for himself in that campaign. Uh, and it created an overnight sensation. I mean, uh, there was a groundswell of enthusiasm right afterwards for people saying, well, gosh, Ronald Reagan needs to get into politics. Uh, there were even a few people who said, gosh, maybe he should just run for president in 1968. <laughs> sort of like people today are saying Ben Carson uh, should run for president because he's right. a great speaker and all the rest of that. But Reagan, I think, had more modest ideas thinking, I think I ought to start with governor of California first <laughs> before I try for president. Uh, but uh, I mean, exactly. it was that was the beginning of the story that we uh, now know. And of course, one of the ironies is the speech was almost not given. There was lots of opposition in the Goldwater campaign. Imagine there's right. this guy that people know, you know, from uh, the GE theater and from movies. But right. you know, he was completely politically untested outside of the speeches he gave at the GE factories. Right. Or into, into small groups of Republican donors. And, and uh, the other thing is, is well, there are several cross currents here. Some of the really bad parts of the story is that the Goldwater campaign ad agency didn't like the idea because they wouldn't get a commission for buying the ad time. So that, that's, you know, you, you do some political campaign work. You know how this stuff works. Uh, but then the, the real strategists or the, you know, the more serious people around Goldwater were worried that the speech was simply too controversial and too strident. Um, the you know, Goldwater people were worried that the yeah. Reagan speech was too controversial. <laughs> yeah, and there, okay. there's a lesson there, isn't there? Now, Goldwater himself, when he saw a tape of the speech, because they had a tape of a previous version, said, this speech looks fine to me. Go ahead and give it. Um, uh, but uh, I think um, yeah, there is an irony there. A Goldwater who gives the single most um, self-destructive line possibly in political rhetoric <laughs> the famous extremism and defense of liberty is no vice line, which is a great line in the abstract, but not very good as a campaign rhetoric. Uh, and, you know, he gave that line and they're worried about Reagan. Well, that's pretty funny. Put it into context for us. It's a week before the election. Johnson had released the infamous Daisy commercial about a month before. And Goldwater is way down in the polls. Ronald Reagan is still seen by most of the country as just an actor. No one knows him as a politician. How did this come about? Did Reagan's people reach out to Goldwater's people, or, or was it the other way around? It's a more complicated and interesting story than that. Uh, look, the problem was, the, uh, for poor Goldwater, and Goldwater knew this, is his campaign was doomed from the start. And, and the main reason being is that the country was unlikely to elect a third or select a third person to be president in 18 months after the Kennedy assassination. You know, Goldwater had planned, he thought, to run for president, and then Kennedy is killed. And even he, even he thought, he said later, that it was probably a doomed effort, but he wanted to do it to change the character of the party. And so what's really important about the Goldwater campaign is it 
it really ended for almost all time the feud that went back to 1912 between establishment or moderate Republicans and conservative Republicans. Moved the party westward too, uh, so that you know you generally have had Western Republican nominees since then. But so it was not a surprise that he was way behind. Uh, but you know this was looking like a disaster, and people had heard Ronald Reagan give this speech that we call the speech, right? And as a group of people, mostly business people, supporting Goldwater in Los Angeles, Henry Salvatore, Cy Rubel, Holmes Tuttle, Justin Dart, people who later became Reagan's, Reagan's kitchen cabinet. And they went to the Goldwater campaign and said, we'll put up the money to put Ronald Reagan on national television for a half hour to do a pitch for you. And that's when the Goldwater campaign was getting cold feet, saying we're not so sure. Gee, couldn't you just give us the money to run some of our other ads, which weren't very good? <laughs> And so they insisted. They say, no, no, uh, uh, you know, we'll make it, by the way, a fundraising appeal for the campaign. So they won the day, and it was broadcast on NBC. And I forget what it cost to buy the hour of time, but it brought in uh, way more than it cost. It brought in well over a million dollars in small contributions. And because it was only a week before the election, they, they actually didn't have enough things to spend the money on. And so the Goldwater <laughs> campaign, like good fiscal conservatives, actually ended the campaign in the black. They had a surplus. That never happens with campaigns, <laughs> right? So that's one of the ironies of all this. <laughs> well, it certainly must have surprised a lot of people. But I'm also curious, was Reagan showing signs of greatness before this? How did he evolve into the Ronald Reagan we see in the speech? You can trace it back to a lot of places, but throughout the 1950s, when he's touring the country for General Electric and giving speeches at General Electric factories in 38 states, and he's essentially giving this speech or versions of it or parts of it, and and you know he's giving talks about public affairs and what's wrong with the country and so forth, and he's also seeing, if you think about it, what works and what doesn't work, uh, what's on people's minds. Some of the stories he would tell are stories that he would be told by workers at the GM, uh, or, sorry, GE factories. And so by the time you get to 1964, he has been giving this message for more than 10 years. And that represented sort of, you might say, his greatest hits or his compilation or the summa of you know 10 years of developing this message. And I mean, Reagan regarded that speech uh, in 1964 as the culmination of the evolution of his thought over the previous 15 or 20 years. Watching the speech, the thing that occurs to me is I wonder if Ronald Reagan at this point had a sense of his own destiny and his own place in history by this point. Do you think he was looking ahead at a political career when he gave this speech? Now, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, Reagan was unquestionably an, an ambitious man and political figure, uh, at least from that moment on, uh, and because you don't get to be president without having a lot of ambition and energy and uh, stick to itiveness and so forth. Uh, whether before that he thought himself as a, an actual political candidate is a little less certain. He, he had been deeply interested in political issues since, really, since he was a young man in the 30s, listening to Franklin Roosevelt's radio addresses. But certainly from the late 40s, when he got involved in politics in Hollywood, when he was head of the Screen Actors Guild, and throughout the 50s, of course. You know, he campaigned still as a Democrat in 1948 for Harry Truman. He was actually on platforms with Harry Truman, introduced him a couple of times at campaign events. Uh, Democrats in Los Angeles thought about trying to get Reagan to run for Congress at some point in the 1950s. This is back when Los Angeles was still something of a Republican town, and the fear was that Reagan was too liberal <laughs> to win in Los Angeles. I mean, how's that for irony uh, all these years That's later? Hard to imagine. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, it, you, but Reagan always, um, on the other hand, Reagan always said, and I, I think, I believe that he meant this, 
that people get to be president uh, almost by destiny. There's a certain almost mystical element in Reagan. I mean, he thought at some point that he was probably destined to be president. This is by the late 60s, early 70s, although he thought the time was later. He did say to somebody that he was relieved he did not get the 1968 nomination. You know, he made a late run for it for a variety of reasons that take a while to explain. And he, and he didn't get it, although he did better than people think. And he was relieved he didn't because he said, I'm not ready to be president yet. And what he'd say publicly was, is I believe that there's an element of destiny in this and that the presidency chooses the man and not the other way around. I don't think he li- believed that literally for everybody because surely he wouldn't approve of our current president. But, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, there's the, the, that was the way Reagan, I think, uh, sort of tempered or modified his own ambition. Um, and But that's a, an interesting part of Reagan that's very hard to nail down. And what was the response to this? Did it lead to a draft Reagan movement within the GOP? Well, the, the draft Reagan for governor thing is interesting. Uh, you know, Reagan, I think, was open to the idea, but he also was a very practical guy. And he understood, look, I have no political experience. And this is now in 1966. California had just become the most populous state in the country, you know, growing fast, uh, the leading economy in the country. And he understood that uh, to run for governor, you just don't start from nothing. Um, and you know, your candidacy will lack some plausibility. So he did what today has been copied by other people, most famously in, in an insincere way, I think, Hillary Clinton in New York in 2000. He did something of a listening tour around the state. He started traveling in early 1965 all over the state, and it was called an exploratory campaign. That's what people say nowadays. And, and that really was, though, in his case, an exploratory campaign. And he would go around and he'd say, well, here's what I think. I don't know everything about state government, but I'm learning. And, and then he would you know, take questions and listen to what people had to say. Uh, and he proved to be very good as an on-the-stump, intuitive uh, retail politician. And that's when he and then the people around him said, oh, yeah, this could work. This is for real. Um, but, you know, the, he, I think, could see that no matter how much enthusiasm, if the candidate's not ready, if the candidate's not prepared, it's not going to work. Well, yeah, in many ways, it's the only thing that people really truly remember from the Goldwater campaign, from the whole 1964 Goldwater campaign. Uh, yeah, to the point that so many people, it seems like, have this misconception that it was actually Reagan who gave <laughs> the nominating speech at the at the Republican National Convention when it was actually Nixon. That's um, right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Richard Nixon gave the nominating speech for Goldwater, and I think people do remember uh, Goldwater's line: uh, "You know, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice." That's probably the most famous uh, nomination acceptance speech right. line in history. I can't think of another that uh, really rival. And there's other presidential or candidate lines that are more famous, you know, Lincoln and the House Divided, but that's not a nomination acceptance speech. Uh, uh, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal speech, uh, maybe that one qualifies. I don't know. But um, but certainly uh, Reagan is what emerges out of all that. And, yeah, I mean, George Will commented in 1980 that actually Goldwater won the election in 1964. It just took 16 years to count all the votes. <laughs> which I rather like. And that's great. That, that is a fantastic quote. Yeah. And I think that's a great place for us to take a quick break. And we will come back to talk more about the lasting impact of the speech and where it led Ronald Reagan after 1964. This portion of the podcast is sponsored by Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R. 
Now, folks, you've heard me rave about Fiverr before. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services, with over 100,000 categories all offered for a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, transcription, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can possibly imagine, all offered at a base price of just $5. In fact, you know the announcer who does our intro to Kick-Ass Politics? I found him on Fiverr, a professional radio announcer to do our intro for just five bucks. And right now, when you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing your support for the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. And if you like what you hear, then make a donation and keep us on the air at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or to make it easier on you, you can go on our website at kickasspolitics.com or our iTunes page, and there's a very easy little donate link right there. Just click on that and make a contribution. Support the show and keep us going. Again, that's GoFundMe.com, G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E.com backslash kickasspolitics. It's very much appreciated. We're back, and I'm talking with Dr. Stephen F. Hayward. He's the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Visiting Professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. And we're discussing Ronald Reagan's A Time for Choosing speech, now 50 years later, just known as the speech by just about everyone in political circles, as if no speech before or since ever existed. And to some extent, that's kind of true, because honestly, I can't think of a speech over the past 50 years that is anywhere near as memorable or even holds a candle to it. I think that's probably right. Uh, it, it was the model for a lot of subsequent Reagan speeches. And little known detail, after Reagan won his landslide re-election in 1984 over Walter Mondale, carrying 49 states, uh, he went into a cabinet meeting either the, day, uh, the next day or two days after, whatever it was, and he handed out copies of A Time for Choosing to the cabinet, saying, this is what we're here for. I mean, obviously the facts and figures had changed, but the basic principles behind it had not. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, because when you look back at Reagan the president versus the Reagan in the speech in 1964, it shows a somewhat different Reagan than many of us remember from the later years. Well, it should be said that to everyone who now looks backwards to the timeline, we're used to the Ronald Reagan of the 1980s, uh, who is optimistic, he's right. cheerful, he's sunny, he's emphasizing mourning in America, the shining city on the hill. And in his very last communication with us in his letter announcing his Alzheimer's disease in 1994, he, he repeats again his most important theme, which was, I know that America's best days lie before us. The future is right. always going to be better than the present because we're building on the past. Well, that's not what you get in the time for choosing speech. Uh, it's much darker, you might say. Reagan mm -hmm. is angrier. He's speaking faster. Partly that's because he has a lot to get in in the half-hour broadcast time. Uh, and he does end with uh, with a sort of a stark choice. That's why it's a time for choosing. If we choose the right way, he suggests, we will, uh, quoting Lincoln, preserve the last best hope of man on earth. Uh, or, here he's also uh, then quoting Churchill. He doesn't name either Lincoln or Churchill at the end, but that's who these lines come from. Like all great orders, Reagan borrowed a lot. He says, or we could be plunged into a thousand years of darkness. So it's a stark choice. 
And, uh, you know, as I say, that's a little different from the Reagan we came to uh, uh, know and love later. We spoke more slowly, uh, a little more emotional, a little more uh, emphasis on the optimism. Of course, once you're president, you can be a little more optimistic because now if you're Reagan, you have a chance to carry out your vision. Whereas then he's purely a private citizen seeing everything sliding away and seeing some of the disasters of the future ahead. It is a different Ronald Reagan, and it's remarkable how a political neophyte, as he was at that time, can cover so much territory in this short speech. And yet he makes it so riveting and so engaging without making it sound like a laundry list of just conservative bullet points. Well, one of the things that you notice about the speech and many Reagan speeches that make them so different from other people, even Goldwater, who made pretty strong attacks on liberalism, is the skill of which he blends the elements of good political argumentation. On the one hand, he's full of facts and figures. You know, we haven't balanced our budget for 26 straight years. Uh, you know, he goes through some facts and figures on taxes and regulation. But he also tells stories and, and brings in larger principles. Uh, in between all those facts and figures will be uh, or, or, or a regulatory horror story. He'll also talk about uh, uh, you know, the meaning of freedom and he would talk about how he talked about the Cuban refugee who says, um, you know, imagine yeah. uh, what happens if your country goes down. We have no, no, nobody will have any place to go to to be free in the world. The United States falters. Right. He tells stories like that. And an awful lot of the, uh, uh, and this is true even of Goldwater, is a lot of conservative political rhetoric then and I think today tends to be purely abstractions. You know, we don't like big government. Well, fine. But Reagan actually explained why and how it was destructive. Uh, in terms that could really grab hold of your emotions, uh, as well as your reason. He had reason and emotion and equal balance in the speech and deployed them very effectively. Right. That's a hard thing to do, and he was a, really a master at it. And I think his ability as a storyteller to draw the listener into a narrative that makes it more personal is one of the things that really sets him apart. I mean, listening to the speech, at times I start to wonder if he should have been a screenwriter instead of an actor in Hollywood. Is that where he gets this ability? He understood the power of narrative, I think, from Hollywood. Um, and maybe he just understood it instinctively. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the truth is, he was a great writer. Uh, you know, he wrote the speech himself. This was not a speech written for him, unlike later speeches where he had help with speech writers because you're too busy as governor or president to write all your own speeches. But true, yeah. I, I had heard that he wrote all of his speeches when he was doing the sometimes yes. Yes, and he, you know, he had them in, in little four by six cards, so he would shuffle them around to change the order of things, and was always editing. And we know that when he did his radio addresses between 1976 and 1980, he did over a thousand of them. And we have handwritten manuscripts uh, that were discovered in the Reagan Library in the archives by accident, almost. We have handwritten manuscripts in his handwriting of about 800 of those thousand radio broadcasts. The suspicion is, by the way, is that he wrote all of them himself because he'd started out his adult career in radio broadcasting. So this was kind of going back to the beginning for him. And one of the things you see is he would write these things out. He would have a secretary in his office type them up, and then he would mark them up and edit them. And we have some of those manuscripts that showed how he shortened sentences, how he made things more clear. So not only was he a good, compelling, and clear writer, but he was a great editor and really good at shortening things down and making it even better. And he not only tells a great story, but he also gets quite a few laughs in this speech, doesn't he? It, not as many as some of his later speeches, but he does because he had certain elements of sarcasm that you could pick up. I mean, Reagan was always good at sort of irony, uh, uh, you know, the funny analogy. I mean, it's not in the, spe the speech, but later in the 60s when the crime rate was soaring, 
He liked to joke that a liberal's idea of being tough on crime is to give a longer suspended sentence to a criminal. <laughs> well, that's funny, but it also contained a grain of truth, right? I mean, right. we were being too lenient toward criminals. It was the permissive society. And he'd skewered it with that one sentence, right, that made you laugh but also really zinged the opposition. He also seems to strike the right balance between good old partisan political red meat issues and less partisan ideas of everyone coming together and let's move this country forward, doesn't he? It, it, the speech didn't really have a lot of direct partisanship. It's indirect partisanship, and that's a subtle point. Right. He talked. To, I mean, he was laying the wood to liberalism and the Democratic Party, and he was calling out individual Democrats by name. He took after a you know Democratic Senator William Fulbright, who was a very big figure in the Democratic Party in the '60s, by name in the speech. He names him. And he attacks him for saying our Constitution is an obsolete document, what Fulbright had said. And Reagan is horrified at this. Um, on the other hand, he says, people say this election is a choice between left and right. He says, but I say it's a choice between up or down, whether we move up to freedom and opportunity or go down into totalitarianism. Uh, right. Well, Which I think pretty much Barack Obama pretty much stole that line. Exactly yeah, I, right. I wouldn't even call it paraphrasing. No, that's uh, right. I, you, absolutely. And, and I think actually... You can say that Reagan didn't steal it, but he derived it from Franklin Roosevelt, who also could talk that way. Although, uh, you know, that kind of approach logically doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. However, it's very effective political rhetoric, I think, to tell people that what you're arguing about is, you know, you're trying to persuade everybody. You're not trying to divide up people into the two parties explicitly. Uh, you're not trying to leave people behind. Uh, I mean, Reagan always thought or had the attitude, I'm going to persuade everybody that what I believe in is a matter of common sense. Uh, and that way he's sort of inviting people along instead of dividing people off. Now, a lot of times today, people say we want transpartisanship. What they mean is they want mush. It's not what Reagan meant. What, what Reagan really meant was this. I'm going to transcend our partisan divisions by winning the arguments. So this is how you get Reagan Democrats, you see. Uh, I mean, one of the things he understood about California is that even in 1966, Democrats outnumbered Republicans by a million voters. So Reagan said early on, I can't win just by getting Republican voters. I have to get a lot of Democratic voters. And he got a whole lot of them. I mean, he beat the incumbent Pat Brown by a million votes, uh, so which meant he got well over a million Democratic votes in that election. And that was the pattern for the future. And even today, Republicans still talk about luring Reagan Democrats back to the party. What are some of the things that the GOP and Republican candidates, especially today, can learn from this speech? Yeah, I think we've touched on some of them, but we ought to put them in order. One of them is uh, to craft your language in as, in as universalist and common sense a way as possible. In other words, I'll do this in reverse. I'll do this in an inverse way. It was a huge mistake for Mitt Romney to make that remark about the forty-seven percent during the campaign. Now that was a private remark, uh, and it wasn't meant to be public, but it did reflect the thinking. I think that you could see expressed in other ways. You know, an awful lot of his rhetoric was about you know entrepreneurs and people who create businesses, and they're very important people. You know that Reagan almost never used the word entrepreneur? I think he used it once in the 1980 campaign. Someone's gone back and counted this up. He talked about, uh, you know, the cop on the beat, you know, the person who goes to work. Uh, he talked in much broader terms, and I think that's the way you have to talk. In other words, his case against big government wasn't that it was bad for the economy or that it was bad for business. It was bad for everybody. And what's wrong with the welfare state is that it hurts everybody, especially the people who are made dependent on it. Not that it divide, you know, today the popular language, which I understand, is you know, we have makers and takers, right? We have people who are productive, and we have too many people who are just leeching off the system. 
now that's is a, a you know an accurate description, but I think it's bad political rhetoric to talk that way, uh, because you're writing off those people who are currently uh, uh, you, you know part of the social benefit programs as though they'll always be there and right. always vote only according to that interest. Right. And I think that's a big mistake. You're you're immediately alienating yourself from one half of the country yes. or the other half. Yes, um, exactly. Which to some extent I suppose is politics, but. <laughs> Well, if you can assume you're going to get a majority, maybe it is. But I, I think you know, Reagan's view was an awful lot of those people probably don't want to be on welfare or they shouldn't be on welfare. And let's try and persuade them that we all have a common interest. Uh, you know, In other words, if you, you say makers and takers, you're aligning yourself with one half of that interest against the other half. Reagan's philosophy and a lot of his rhetoric follow this was it's bad for everybody and we're all in this together. And we all ought to have the same interest in not having that kind of government. That was the core of his appeal. And it's, as I say, it's subtle, but I think it's lost on a lot of people today. That is a really good point. Why is it that 50 years later, this speech still endures? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to really offer you a whole lot better than it had a certain magical quality to it, right? I, I mean, it is true that Reagan's good looks, his good voice, his great delivery stand out in an era when we don't have many really great orators anymore. Even Obama, I don't think it's that good a speaker. It's just that he's sort of different. He's not Jesse Jackson, right? Um, he's not boring like John Kerry. So it's a low bar, I think. Uh, but Reagan really set the gold standard for it. I'd say this also, why it's memorable. Um, I went back and counted up what I regard as the number of speeches you can look at in American history that propelled the person giving them to the front rank of presidential politics almost overnight. And there's really just four. Uh, Abraham Lincoln gave his Cooper Union address in January 1860, and that laid out the stakes of what was going on in the country. And that, and it was printed in newspapers all over the country because we didn't have radio or TV then, and people read it. That propelled him to the front rank of the brand new Republican Party. In 1896, as we know, William Jennings Bryan shows up at the Democratic Convention and gives the Cross of Gold speech. And 72 hours later, at age 36, he's the Democratic nominee for president. And the third such speech, I think, is Obama's 2004 convention speech. He was going to be elected to the U.S. Senate, but I think without that speech, I don't think he becomes the Democratic nominee four years later. And then the fourth speech, this is out of order, the fourth speech is Reagan's time for choosing speech, because as we've said, is there was such a groundswell of enthusiasm for it that that propelled him. Because he does. If, if Reagan does not give that speech, I doubt he runs for governor of California or becomes president. That's why the speech is remembered, both for its quality and also for its historical effect. We're almost out of time, but often I like to ask people, what is their favorite quote or an anecdote? And I'd love to hear if you have a favorite quote or zinger from Ronald Reagan. It can be from the speech or from any time in his career. Do you have one? Yeah, I do have a favorite one. You know, Reagan had lots of uh, set piece jokes and so forth, but he had spontaneous humor. And so my favorite, you can find this on YouTube, by the way, if you look up Reagan's funny answer, it's only 20 seconds long. It's from a press conference in 1982, and Sam Donaldson, who I asked about this once, by the way, and Sam's actually kind of a nice guy when he's not on camera as a newsman. <laughs> Donaldson gets up, and his, he can be very pompous, right? And he says, Mr. President, you have attacked the Congress for this large budget deficits in our current economic crisis. Do you, sir, take any of the blame for this yourself? Right, it's supposed to be a zinger. And Reagan just smiles, looks at him, says, well, yes, Sam, because for most of my life, I was a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. That the is whole the press room busted up, and Donaldson <laughs> told me, he says, that was my worst humiliation at the hands of Ronald Reagan. But that showed his spontaneous quick wit. 
Well, Dr. Stephen F. Hayward, thank you very much for coming on the show sure. and celebrating the 50th anniversary of Reagan's A Time for Choosing speech. It was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed today's episode, then I think you'll really get a kick out of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents by today's guest, Stephen F. Hayward. And right now, you can download the audio version of this book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents by Stephen F. Hayward or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage. Also, if you like what you hear, then make a donation to keep us on the air at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Your support and your vote of confidence is very much appreciated. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and download all of the podcast episodes. And don't forget to leave me a review on iTunes. Feel free to shoot me an email at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'll leave you with more from Ronald Reagan's A Time for Choosing. Wow, they didn't call him the great communicator for nothing. See you next time. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.